I read a theory once that the human intellect was like peacock feathers, just an extravagant display intended to attract a mate. All of art, literature, Beethoven, Mozart, William Shakespeare, Michelangelo, and the Empire State Building. Just an elaborate mating ritual. Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television that obsesses us. Right now, we're watching Westworld. I'm Annalie Newitz, your host. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. And my guest this week was a writer on season one of Westworld. His name is Charles Yu, and he's right there in the credits as story editor on a bunch of the episodes. He's also the author of one of my very favorite science fiction novels, which is called How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. So I definitely urge you to check that out. But first, we need to get Charlie to tell us all about what the hell happened this week on Westworld. So let's get started. Thanks for being here to talk to me from kind of the inside of the writer's room. I have a lot of feelings that I need to process with you about Bernard, so I hope that you're prepared (laughs) to talk a little bit about that. The episode that just aired, um, you know, we learned... What is this, Bernard? doesn't look like anything to me. Actually, I learned that Bernard is a robot, even though I had been claiming for weeks that that couldn't happen. I was really team Bernard being a human. I don't know what that would, what team that is. Team human Bernard. And so I guess like the the thing that I kept wondering um, as I was watching that is, you know, thinking back on this episode, do you feel like that in this episode we get a sense that maybe there are no humans who are kind of robot sympathizers because I always thought of Bernard as being kind of the one human character who really had sympathy for the robots. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Speaking of the viewer, I think Elsie is also somebody who I'm not sure where she might fall in the spectrum, but she definitely seems like she has an open mind about things. I think I'd put her in the category of at least potentially sympathetic. But, and again, I'm speaking purely as a viewer, trying to imagine how how she comes across. And I think she's demonstrated curiosity and real kind of, like she says in an episode, she doesn't have an agenda. She's the only person who doesn't seem to have any kind of ulterior agenda to what she's doing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she's just trying to be an engineer, basically. She's trying to figure out what's wrong with the, with the robots. She's just trying to get to the bottom of the mystery. And so, yeah, she doesn't really have a dog in the fight, such as the fight is. We we finally kind of, you know, seen a little bit of what the conflict is between Ford and, and Delos. And Elsie just has no idea that that's going on at all. What about the character of Felix, um, he's the right. kind of lowly lab tech. You've been topside for less than 24 hours. You keep coming down this often, people are going to notice. Where's Clem? I don't know. I haven't seen her. Why? Find her. Do you think he sympathizes with Maeve? Do you think he kind of revels in her rebellion a little bit? Or or should or is he less of a, of a robot sympathizer? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, Annalie. I think Felix is definitely um, another character where we really get a chance to see and kind of play through some of the really interesting questions that are, you know, philosophical and head trippy and, you know, and and I think to some extent emotional, you know, the, the question of 
well, what is the difference? You know, when, when Maeve takes his hand and they're touching palm to palm, I think that's, for me, a really sort of powerful image and a powerful idea of interplay and the interface between, you know, human and machine and where and how that line starts to get blurred. And, and, and to have it be through this character who is, as you point out, relatively low or very low, maybe on the sort of hierarchy of, of Delos and, and coming from his kind of particular as a character perspective as somebody who has openly stated, at least as Sylvester, openly stated his ambitions to be more. I, I think it's it's an, a very interesting point of view, and, and, and it always was for me. So did you, I mean, you can speak as a writer, too, on this, but did you think of the robots as being fundamentally different from the humans, or d- were you really thinking about what they had in common, or both? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, both, and no. I think that's that was always the challenge and the sort of inspiration, to, to the idea that you could even, you know, in a real sort of sci-fi way, think about these questions and know that it was going to play out in this kind of format and, and on this scale was pretty amazing. To And, and so I, I, I don't mean to dodge the question. I think that's what's fascinating is that I, I never wanted an answer and I don't, you know, I, I don't think necessarily that an answer would ever be satisfactory. I think it's a whole bunch of interesting questions that, you know, will continue to probably evolve for, I think, for a lot of people as AI gets better and better, these questions become relevant. But also within the context of the show, I think they continue to evolve. So yeah, I think one of the things that was, I mean, this has been true throughout the show for me that there's often discussions of robot consciousness, which really feel to me like discussions of human consciousness. And in this episode, we got a very concrete, you know, conversation about that between, I guess it's Bernard and Teresa are talking about the looping and the memories that the robots have. What you said in the lab was right. We don't know how the hosts work. And I think there's something wrong with them. Ford's explanation only bolsters my hunch. The ability to deviate from program behavior arises out of the host's recall of past iterations. We learn explicitly that memory is kind of the key to the robot's ability to improvise and that each loop is not really a repetition. It's Each loop is a variation. And I'm wondering, if, do you think that that's true of humans, too, that we kind of put ourselves through loops and slowly pull ourselves out of them, hopefully? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think it's more true. And I think the older I get, the more I sort of have that dawning thinking feeling of like, oh, I'm a creature of habit and pattern and I have wiring and, you know, hardware and software that my behavior, as I find myself grappling with existential questions as a a human, as far as I'm aware, I, I think the realization that I may be stuck in behavioral patterns that weren't necessarily clear always, but become clear the more I find myself falling into the same traps and falling into the same routines. That's a real, you know, meaty and interesting area in itself. And then when you lay over that, the idea of a theme park with robots that have that programmed in, I mean, that was probably the the single most exciting thing when I, when I first started, you know, to think about this. And when I got the chance to come on board with Jonah and Lisa, I mean, the idea of these loops these narrative loops that they had ingeniously kind of put into the structure of the pilot, it blew my mind. And it still seems like the most exciting part of the storytelling for me, just as a dorky metafiction kind of nerd, you know, someone who loves the idea of talking about stories and Uh stories about stories. 
that's of particular interest for me as for many reasons. So let's let's dive into talking about the stories because one of the themes in this episode was we learned that Ford's real bone that he's picking with Delos. I mean, he has a lot of bones he's picking with a lot of people, but the board will do nothing. Our arrangement is too valuable to them. They test me every now and then. I, I think they enjoy the sport a bit. Delos is trying to just get a local copy of all of the IP that he is hoarding in the park. And he says, you know, I just want to tell my stories. And it's really Delos that keeps trying to take them and turn them into IP and to intellectual property. Arnold and I designed every part of this place. It was our dream. Did you really think I would let you take it from me? You know, it's like we're seeing this conflict between people who want to just tell stories and people who want to monetize the stories and not just the stories, but the Mm. data that's been produced by the stories. Yeah, I mean, Ford is an enigma. (laughs) He's very mysterious. And I think we haven't quite seen, as you would probably guess, uh, quite seen the extent of his plans. And I don't think we yet know his motivations. And I, I think that's probably true of the corporation as well. But we are, as you point out, starting to see some of the initial chess moves of what their interests are, what their you know, beginning positions are here. We get the sense here also that this has been something that's been going on, you know, in, both in the conversation that Hale has with Teresa and also in, in some of Ford's dialogue in this last episode. I think you start to get the sense of this history that's been going on. And as you point out, that they've got diverging interests in this particular way between what he wants from the park and what they want from the park. But do you think that there's something about the idea of turning a story into intellectual property that's kind of reflected a little bit in what we're seeing with the robots in this narrative. It, it seems like it's it seems like this series, the Westworld series, is kind of haunted by this idea of intellectual property. Like, what if your story was intellectual property? What if you were a piece of a story and you yourself were intellectual property? It just it seemed like when we started hearing that in this episode, that it kind of was putting a name to a, a sort of nameless dread that had been sneaking up on the story all along. I think that's one of the things that Jonah and Lisa's pilot, and, and then as we, as a group, kind of broke the, the season, did think about is, and, and this is probably not, you know, breaking news, but that this is a lot of ways a story that is about telling stories and what stories mean to us yeah, and what, you know, projecting into the future, what stories, if you if you extrapolate from where we are now, you know, which I would say at the present moment, there's a kind of like, and this is me positing this for my own totally idiosyncratic take on it, but that people have gotten very good at reading stories, you know, and I mean that in every sense, in terms of consuming a story. And there's a kind of collective learning curve to how we understand, you know, structure in a story, for instance, and how we understand archetypes and myths and how how we process that. And then it, when you also combine that with the big, huge platforms of how stories are told in terms of as, as essentially multimedia platforms for IP, there does get start to become this interesting, you know, sort of interplay between how we expect things from our stories and yet want to also be surprised by them at the same time. That, that always fascinated me 
before I even thought about them in the context of this show. And then to think about them in something like a Westworld, which is this cool symbol and kind of crystallization of all of these ideas in one place. It's a neat opportunity to explore a lot of the ideas you're talking about. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by the idea that we we want to have the stories, but we want to be surprised by them at the same time? Like we kind of want to know them, but not know them? That That's really interesting. I think what we're seeing is that as a society, you can actually learn like the forms that are put out by the people that put out stories. You can get better at anticipating and dissecting and you know, really understanding what the storyteller is trying to do. And then that becomes a kind of feedback loop. And this is really me going off on it. I don't speak for any other writers on this one, but <laughs> okay. yeah, except maybe by accident. But I, I, I think there's an interesting feedback loop for me that between a storyteller who knows that the audience, who kind of becomes in dialogue with the audience, you know, and, and I, I think to some extent you then go from a kind of one-way storytelling to a storytelling of sort of rational expectations in a in a market, right? It's like if everybody knows that something is going to happen, then they sort of price that into what's going to happen. And then how do you ever get something that's going to be a real surprise or a real subversion of what everybody is trained to expect? That's, to me, a, sort of an interesting question because one, why do certain forms have a kind of appeal for us? Like why, for instance, there's a kind of classical three-act structure, for instance, or why would like the hero's journey, for instance, be mm-hmm. something that persists over time? Or the Western. And then two, or the Western, yes. I mean, I think that there's a lot of exactly rich sort of convention and genre tropes that both carry a lot of weight and, and carry a lot of sort of cultural baggage and memory with them. But at the same time, I think people are generally are looking for a twist on something, right? So how do you both deliver that and then subvert at the same time is something that seems to be kind of a recurring theme. And not just this story, but I think in how what people want from their stories. And what's really interesting about, I think, what Lisa and Jonah try to do is they're, they're sort of seem to be aware of all of this. And they're trying to tell a story within that environment, you know, and I thought that was a really interesting challenge because when you have this kind of platform and it's on HBO and it's like everybody's going to be bringing certain expectations to this show and then to still manage to surprise people, I think it is an impressive feat, but I mean, it it was definitely a challenge in, in terms of how do you create something new when so many things have been done and people have gotten so good at, you know, kind of putting out all of the possible theories that, that might be out there. Yeah, I mean, that's the man in Black's character. He is basically looking for that surprise and that twist. Like that is his quest is really for, you know, the meaning of the story that deviates from what he's already seen something new and I think that's interesting that he's he's kind of the built-in fan audience in this story and he's kind of I mean I'm not even kind of he is a bad guy he's ruthless and horrible at least so far I'm sure he'll have some more depth later but it's kind of interesting that the that the ultimate fan becomes sort of a villain figure that is funny I don't know if that was totally like 
not to slam any kind of fans or anything like that. I think fans are probably not villains, but, but yeah, that is interesting. He's not representing every fan. He's kind of the fan no. like we see in a movie like Misery or in mean, a book and a movie like Misery, where it's kind of the super fan who just really, you know, wants to own the narrative essentially and wants to um, kind of control it by finding every little piece of it and getting to its core. So one of the things also about storytelling that I think is so interesting about Westworld is the fact that stories are dangerous and they're harmful. They're not just a game. I mean, it is just a game for the humans who are visiting the park, but for the robots who have to kind of go through these loops every day, it's it's traumatizing, it's haunting, and physically dangerous. And I wonder what you're thinking as a writer or what you guys were thinking in the writer's room about that. Were you consciously trying to dramatize how dangerous stories can be? And were you thinking of any real life analogs to those stories and how people might be harmed by them? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's a really interesting question because I, I think stories are obviously, you know, I'm a fiction writer and I stories are very important to me. And I think they're incredibly important in many ways. I don't always associate them with danger. And yet, as you were talking, I, I, I realized that there is a kind of one inherent danger I, I think of is you can get wrapped up in the story in a way that that can really cause you to lose your ability to perceive reality in an unbiased way. <laughs> um, that's a pretty loaded statement, I guess, but and take it in the context of whatever context you want to take it in. But that, <laughs> that yes, a story has a, I mean, I think unique power over the machinery of our sort of cognition, I guess, right? That's a really highfalutin way of saying stories can grip us in ways that probably nothing else can, you know, in terms of like, you can make a logical argument or you can make, you know, a sort of clever sort of rhetorical argument for something. But if you can put something in a narrative and get someone invested in that narrative and feel like they now want to know where that narrative leads or they feel that they are the protagonist of that narrative, I think, I guess, it probably goes without saying that that's an incredibly powerful thing and that's probably really dangerous thing to potentially dangerous thing. I mean, obviously, it can be the opposite of dangerous. It can be life-saving or liberatory or subversive uh, in a good way. But we, we see in this episode, William having that exact experience of getting so sucked into a fictional narrative that his real life becomes pretend for him. I know you have someone waiting for you at home. Oh, that feels so unreal now. I used to think this place was all about pandering to your baser instincts. Now I understand. It doesn't cater to your lowest self. It reveals your deepest self. And he mm. feels like he's become his true self within a story. And, you know, the more that he becomes himself, the more violent he becomes. And the more he does things mm. without worrying about the consequences, like allowing Dolores to feel like they're partners now. Um, you know, and he's he's obviously going to break her heart. I mean, probably her memory will be erased. But it's interesting because it's as if these humans who come to visit the park are also kind of being reprogrammed by the stories that they're seeing. Right. Specifically, I think in this last episode, we hear William, when he's on the train with Dolores, he doesn't quite seem to be hearing her side of the conversation. He seems to be a little bit wrapped up in his sense of where the story is taking them. And that he might have a kind of human bias 
thinking that that I think as all humans, you know, believe, well, I'm the protagonist of my story. And so it's an interesting thing to think about that scene in, con- in the context of what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, that maybe he's kind of mistaken himself as the protagonist and he, he isn't, in fact. The other thing I was thinking about the danger of stories is that I wonder if you guys were thinking in the writer's room about the idea that, as you were saying, stories kind of reprogram us. We can really be persuaded to become, our, our rationality can become clouded by stories. And, you know, the robots in Westworld, they've been programmed to play a role in a story And I wonder if that's part of the danger of stories is maybe when you buy into a story too much, you think, well, there's only a limited number of roles for me to play in in reality. My question is whether you guys were kind of thinking about the robots as being victims of stories. Yes, I think I think. And this is something I think you touched on. And I thought in the last episode of Cryptid, you, you talked a bit about the very limiting roles for both the, the male and the, the female hosts, I guess, in terms of what their possibilities are. And another constraint on top of that is that they're in this Western setting. And so you have the added constraint of them being in a particular time period where roles were even more fixed and even more sort of circumscribed. And so I think Dolores is, and, and Maeve are absolutely, you know, locked into oppression in their very narratives are just completely engineered so that they are going to experience a lot of punishment and pain at the hands of the guests. Yeah, and I mean, also at the hands of the Western itself, because it is a violent genre. It's about colonialism. It's about, you know, clashes between cowboys and Indians, as we saw in this episode. And so they're they're sort of just trapped in this kind of pretty dark period in U.S. history. They're getting kind of the worst of everything. And then also they're having to kind of entertain their human guests. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like in the writer's room. Did you guys, did you kind of all get together and and do world building together? Did you come together and then kind of like break apart to write episodes? How did, how did it work? Yeah, no, that was definitely, and this was, you know, my first writer's room. And I was really amazed and inspired because basically we spent good amount of time early on really thinking through a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of themes, in terms of storytelling and and, and the Western and, and narrative and AI and, and talking about everything. And then once we kind of had a, a huge inventory of ideas and stories, then it kind of becomes a process of breaking it season. And then from there, further breaking that out into episodes. And so you're listed in the credits as story editor. I can ne- I never understand what any of these titles mean because some places have producers and some people have you know it you know. So what did it mean right. that you were the the story editor? What did you get to do? Um, it meant I was the new guy. <laughs> I was actually the the. So you were like Felix in the basement, Um, kind of working on (laughs) taking MRSA out of the (laughs) storyline. Yes, basically. I I was lucky enough to be part of the room of people that all of whom had more experience than I did. So they were Hallie Gross, who you might have seen, was co-credited on the last two episodes um, as she co-wrote with Jonah Nolan. And she was also story editor. And then there were a bunch of writers who were all fabulous and they their names will appear. Most of them are in the front of the credits. So th- there were a bunch of us writing all together. And so I, I was the new guy kind of learning and absorbing and trying to contribute when I could. Having read your novel, uh, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, I, I know that you're a guy who's really interested in meta narratives and 
that's a an example of a novel which is not just a great novel but it's also about kind of writing novels and what does it mean to kind of find out that you're in a narrative kind of in the middle of your life (laughs) you realize oh actually my life is also a story I mean that's one of the many things that's going on in that book and I just I kept thinking as I was watching this show I'm like of course Charles Yu is writing this show because he's (laughs) so interested in the mechanism of storytelling and I wonder if there's anything that you kind of got in there or like any ideas that you kind of helped work on that made it into the final product that you feel like proud of that are about storytelling or, or anything else? It's hard to separate. It's, it'd be as if, you know, we all cooked a meal together and then I tried to point to a certain bite. You know, I mean, it, right. it, it's it, the show is really created by Lisa and Jonah. And, but but yes, we all as a, as a group certainly brought our own experiences and our own particular kinds of storytelling to it. And if I could be immodest for one second, I guess I think I, I was interested and probably talked more than anyone else was interested in some of the meta and other philosophical aspects of it. I mean, I love the idea of this place as a as a front stage, backstage place. You know, I love the idea that we could see the texts and how they would be storytellers and what that would mean for our ability to make comments about what stories mean and and how they operate on people. But I think all of that was already baked into it. It's more just that I got, like you're saying, I got to live out a fantasy and getting to play in this particular sandbox. One of the scenes that I think is so effective in this story, I mean, there's a number of scenes where we kind of see characters being built out of traits. And at the same time, we're seeing stories being built out of little chunks and out of characters. And I wonder if, as you guys were putting this together, what were you thinking about the idea of authorship? Like, who are the authors of the story? I mean, I know Ford thinks he's the author, but we know that's a bunch of bullshit. So who do you think? <laughs> well, I think it is anyway. So who who do you think the authors are in this story? I mean, I, I think the very question is what's driving the mystery and the, for me, driving the central kind of, it's my fascination that, that that's not an easy question to answer, right? I mean, you have Ford as, an, as a human author. We have someone, a, a creature like, Bernard, who we now know to be a host, and yet is still also participating in this authorship. And you have hosts who, as we've seen, especially in someone like Maeve, who, or Dolores as well, I think, who appear to be able to go off script at times, or at least becoming aware at the edges of the fact that they do have scripts. And so there's a kind of like possibly, you know, the emerging form of authorship there if, if they are trying to diverge from their determined, you know, overdetermined sort of fate. And then you've got guests who, you know, in, in the original movie, you sort of think of as primarily, well, it is really from the perspective of guests. And here it's, I think the series has subverted that and inverted that so that the guests seem to be, of, of all those groups, seem to be sort of like the least authors of anything. They're, they're sort of just along for the ride so far. Ostensibly, they're also thinking, you know, you, you look at someone like the man in black, you know, he states he's trying to go on his narrative, right? So he's he's figuring out what kind of story he's in. So And Ma- the man in black says you needed a villain and you didn't put one in, so... I'm going to play that role. Right. You're right. I mean, he is, I mean, of all of the guests that we've seen, I think he's closest to being an, an author. 
that uh, you know as opposed to logan who's just kind of like yeah i'm here to like <laughs> find pariah now i'm done <clears throat> so what do you think of the bicameral mind not the as episode a, but a... <laughs> just as a concept <laughs> yes the the julian james's uh origin of consciousness and mm-hmm. the breakdown of the bicameral mind which is i remember talking about it and it's a fascinating theory to me i mean it's one of those things where it's like whether or not this is true or forget true whether or not this has any kind of scientific you know plausibility yeah. It's one of those things that completely takes me out of my mindset and go and makes me question things that I, I normally wouldn't question, which is why couldn't consciousness be the way I think of James's theory is that consciousness is essentially like a software upgrade that we didn't have. It didn't have to be in the hardware of the brain that human consciousness was, in fact, something developed at a specific point in time or at least over a specific range of time wasn't always there. And it doesn't have to be there in the way we think. And it requires a kind of meta-awareness, essentially. I still enjoy sort of just rolling around with that idea because even if I don't ultimately believe in it, and I don't think I do, but it's still one of those things where it can make me think about consciousness itself in a, in a different way. Is that because it's a way of thinking of consciousness as being you in dialogue with another voice? And so you have to have... You have to have sort of an alien voice in your head in order to be conscious. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of an eerie idea and, and feeling. If nothing else, it's like this incredible metaphor for me, you know, to think about or, or a kind of evocative way of thinking about what it feels like sometimes. So I have a final question for you, which is extremely frivolous, but I'm just curious, who are your favorite characters in, in Westworld? Who, who did you enjoy oh writing the most? Actually, and that doesn't have to be your favorite characters, but who did you enjoy writing the most? Like what really allowed you to kind of explore the themes that you find fascinating? I think it, it is probably Maeve. I mean, yes, I love so many of the characters and so many of the performances are amazing. But I think Maeve and Bernard and Felix, I would say, I I think Maeve, because she is at this weird place where she's Dolores is sort of we see her going through her own journey in the park here. And then Maeve, we see down below with the text. And so she's having these kind of really upsetting realizations where they're almost like something out of a horror narrative, right? I mean, it's really kind of inconceivable to think of what it would look like to someone like Maeve, who is learning that reality is not at all what she thought. And she's learning it in very sudden and visceral graphic ways. And so I think that kind of exploration was always interesting to me. And the text also, I think, as people who are constantly interfacing with these ideas of something like programming Maeve's attribute matrix just that idea itself as a you know as a D player myself and as you know somebody who just likes the idea of of an attribute matrix yeah. <laughs> uh, i think i think just those kind of things are just i i nerd out on and i've, I've always enjoyed that kind of stuff why do you like felix is i hope he's going to become more of a major character he sort of seems like he's 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 got a good he's had some good moments yeah, no, I mean, that's another thing that I really like about early on, the showrunners wanted to have a sense of hierarchy and get a more of a sense of the ecosystem of Delos, you know, not, not just to see the top layer or not just to see some kind of narrow slice, but to actually get a bit of a cross-section, vertical cross-section of that corporate structure. And that's another sort of one of my interests is I like to write about work. You know, I worked for a long time as a lawyer while I was writing fiction, and I think 
a workplace story and it, it as weird and as as crazy as it is that's still you know they're it's really a workplace story right in, down there and that's always interesting to me um yeah i love then, that too so weren't you an ip lawyer didn't you work with uh, IP? i did yeah i, I wouldn't like a hard IP lawyer or anything, but I did yeah, do a fair amount of fair amount of that. So this is really meta because you're right. You were, you were working on a story about work with IP. So that sounds appropriate. <laughs> it is weird. It's like everything in my life was, was lined up. I was a biology major in undergrad and then I was a lawyer and then I was a fiction writer and I still am. And then, you know, I get to work on this and it's like probably not qualified to do much else, but write a, write a meta story about about AI. Yeah, I, I think I I think I want to do that. That sounds pretty fun. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on and joining us today. Thank you very much, Emily. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. I'm your host, Annalie Newitz, and I'll be here every week obsessing over Westworld until the season is over. So be here next week and we'll talk some more. <laughs>